Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. You're hosted by Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. Mary and I are both very excited about 2023, as you may have heard in the kickoff from last week. I'm so glad to have Amy Shu here. Amy is a partner at Morgan Lewis, and she started out her career as a white-collar litigation associate. Between those times, she's had an experience in leading investigations as a chief compliance officer, and she's going to tell us a lot about what she calls the jungle gym of her career. I've gotten to know Amy over the last year and feel as if I've learned so many things from her, and I feel very grateful for that. She's the kind of attorney that can really help with spot-on legal analysis and also really understands the business and how to work with us in-house. So, Amy, thank you so much for being my first interview of 2023. I'm so excited to talk to you. So let's start by hearing a bit about Sure. And thanks for inviting me. This is a great opportunity for us to connect again in the new year. So I've had this crazy, weird, winding career that I never probably anticipated. I actually went to law school to be a prosecutor and ended up going big firm instead. And I was a white collar associate. I managed commercial class action work. And kind of at one point, got a phone call from a client that I was primarily working on asking me if I'd be willing to be seconded for three months, but the secondment was urgent. So in two weeks, can you move across country to be seconded? Because they had two lawyers going out on emergency maternity leave. They had issues with their infants. And so I had to make a quick decision, which was, sure, I'm happy to come, and flew out to California, where I was seconded as a business lawyer, which in my mind, I didn't really know what that meant. I basically thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to law school. As long as I issue spot and know who to get questions answered from, I should be okay. That three-month secondment turned into 15 months. And at the end of that secondment, I was hired into HP as a litigation manager. And then shortly thereafter, we had a significant board scandal. And coming out of that board scandal, the company was put under a consent decree with the California Attorney General. There was all sorts of investigations happening around individuals and lawsuits involving the company. And I was asked to stand up our first corporate compliance program. It is not a job I wanted to do, <laughs> to be honest, but it was the job I was given. So that was my entry into the world of compliance. When I was in law school, compliance wasn't a thing. They didn't teach compliance. And so I started on this listening tour to understand what compliance meant. Pretty, pretty close after I started that job, there was a compliance week meeting. So I went down to D.C. and listened to what everybody was doing. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing here. I'm going to try to create my own program and my own assessments that really would be geared towards what would I say if I were sitting across the DOJ in trouble. So that white collar background really paid off in droves for me. And that was the beginning of my compliance journey. I then went on maternity leave. While I was on maternity leave, uh, we were Dawn raided. And then there was a Wall Street Journal article about a potential bribery investigation. So I came out of maternity leave early to then lead HP's global investigations team and the FCPA investigation. And then I was asked to move 
back out to California to do a chief of staff role, a strategy operations role. And I did that for a time. And then I ended up moving back east. So on my jungle gym, I took a slide back east to stand up Merck's global investigations team. And that was scary because the industry was so new to me. I was never in pharma. I never supported pharma as an outside lawyer. And it was great. So I had an opportunity to build a team and also spent a significant amount of time working with their compliance program and the policies and the processes, the things that as investigators, you look to to figure out, is there a policy violation? Did the employee do any, anything wrong? And I got a phone call. <laughs> so my boss's boss at the time was a guy named Mike Holston. He also happens to be the guy who hired me out of law school. And he called me and he said, listen, I just got a call from a headhunter. There's a job and it has your name written all over it. And while I don't want you to leave, this is an opportunity I think you have to explore on your own. That was to be Cognizant's chief ethics and compliance officer. At the time, Cognizant was in the middle of its own FCPA investigation. Its prior general counsel and president had resigned and had been indicted for FCPA violations. A new general counsel had been hired and his first hire was to bring in a chief compliance officer. And so I took that job and I spent the next four plus years building and enhancing a general corporate ethics and compliance program and a very strong anti-corruption program. When I started, literally, I was told your job is to not get us a monitor. So <laughs> I was like, no pressure. Okay. Um, so within six months of me starting that job, I was in front of DOJ, SEC, walking through our compliance program and our what we had done to enhance it, or our plans were to monitor and continuously improve that program. And we got out of that investigation with a declination, some disgorgement and some undertakings with the SEC. And then I got to this point where all of that work was done and maybe it was a little bit of COVID, but it was what do I want to do with the rest of my life moment, yeah. which I think a lot of us were dealing with. I had interviewed with several companies to be a chief compliance officer elsewhere. And I kept taking my name out of consideration for these jobs. And at one point I sat down with my husband. And I said, I wonder why, what is it? Is it the job? Is it the company? Why do I keep taking my name out? Of and I had this realization that I just really wanted to do something different. And I wanted to fill what I viewed as a huge vacuum in the world of private practice around providing kind of real practical advice to chief compliance officers around how to build a program and how to con continuously enhance it. And so I started having conversations with some consulting firms, frankly, and then had this realization, no, like I'm a lawyer, first and foremost, most first and foremost, I've always identified with being a lawyer and that's important to me. And I reached out to the one law firm I wanted to go back to. So I actually texted Jamie McKeon, who's the chair of Morgan Lewis. She's somebody who took an interest in me and nurtured our relationship back when I was a Morgan Lewis associate and then as, as a client of the firm. And I texted her and I said, hey, I have this idea that I want to pitch. And the next day we were on the phone. So I have, for the last 15 months, have been building a corporate ethics and compliance practice at Morgan Lewis. And it has been awesome. And I'm doing exactly what I hoped to do every day, which is a joy. But also it's just 
it's so rewarding to get to meet other kind of colleagues who are steeped in ethics and compliance who understand what that means. Because a lot of times in the, your own company, people don't know what that means or what your job is. So it's just been, it's been really great to continue to expand my network and really feel like I'm adding value to, to a myriad of clients, big and small, around discrete areas or even just helping build a program from scratch. Yeah, it's so interesting. And one of the things that when I've spoken with you that really resonated with me is the way in which you understand from your experiences what the business is, which is important. But the other thing that would really, I appreciated and it has reminded me was when at some point you say, okay, great, you just told me we were talking about something. And then here are the three things that you look at. You pull up, you're very good at pulling back into what do the laws actually say? What do we care about? Because I think oftentimes in an organization, we eventually are working in the real-time crisis, figuring it out and thinking on strategy, both from what's the best thing to do as an ethics and compliance officer, and then thinking, what does the law actually say? And what, if we ever have to do something, what is anyone going to care about in reality? Yeah. And I have to say, I think it's about an experience that is really helpful for law firms. And I think it's helpful for those of us in companies. So one question, quick question I want to ask you about going back in 15 or 15 months ago after not being in a law firm and having experience and knowing Morgan Lewis, did anything excuse me, surprise you coming back that you weren't expecting? It's funny because I left as an associate, which in coming in as a partner is a very different experience on a lot of different levels. One, I was surprised that I didn't care about billing again. We all work hard. I think whether you're in-house or at a law firm, the work's there, right? And the demands on you and your time are there. But so I didn't, that I was worried that I was going to be surprised there. I'm not. The other thing that is surprising is just perspective. So coming back older and wiser and more experienced, things that stressed me out as a junior or mid-level associate are just those issues just don't exist, but it's nice context as I'm building a team of associates at the firm to remember how it is they might be reacting to certain things, like what stresses them out versus right. what stresses out a partner. So it's just, it's, it has been, it's a nice return because you realize, you know what, I have actually learned a ton in my kind of 18 years of in-house experience and, and I can help people in the firm understand kind of the realities of doing business, right? the things that our clients have to experience in terms of resource constraints or not every risk is created equal, right? Or the risk appetite is not the same. And you're never really going to be able to implement an ideal solution, right? Like the, to your point, like where is the risk? What is good enough? And sometimes, most of the time, that's got to be your it, it, And it's a hard thing to do. I just, it, the relationships you build at law firms really can take really become friendships for years and other things. I just had coffee yesterday with someone I worked with at the very beginning of my career. But I remember when I started and is thinking I would get something I was in litigation. And you think, how could this possibly have happened? How could all these people let this happen? <laughs> you're after you're at a company, you're like, this is karma because I could watch this go wrong in real time and I'm going to do everything I can to protect it. But I'm watching that folder roll. Yeah. And that's what I love. I mean, that this is the sick, Amy. I love the crisis, right? And part of it is, I think, especially at my 
days at HP and through the 2000s, we had a lot of crisis. We had a lot of scandal. It was like a joke that one year at HP back then is like seven years in a normal company. Just given the number of really interesting, complex issues that we were managing almost all the time. So I became addicted to <laughs> crisis and scandal. So for me, I love when weird stuff happens because you know what it is. Something's going to happen. I think that was my biggest worry as a chief ethics and compliance officer is like, where's it going to pop up next? Yep. So in-house, you internalize that a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, I mean, talking about, that's a good segue into some of the things that you've been thinking about a lot too. And you just talked about it here in terms of building your team of associates. And I think some of the things that really, you mentioned two articles and it's the best homework I've had in a while because they were fantastic articles. So I'm going to start with, you talk a little bit about both of them. And one is from Fast Company in 2021. The author for those listening is Kelly D. Parker and called Three Reasons to Stop Being Nice. I actually thought the title is, it was one of those grabby but misleading things because it really talks about being kind and how to be an authentic leader. So I, it's something that I've thought a lot about, especially because women, sometimes niceness is a quality. So can you talk a little bit about how you see the distinction between being nice and being kind and how that builds teams? Sure. So I do think perhaps as girls were taught to be nice, that may be a message that is pushed down. And I was the nice kid. I was one of the people who was described as bossy <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> and that's okay. And I think that the distinction between nice and kind is pretty clear in my head, which is nice tend to be people pleasers, right? They want to make sure they're not upsetting the apple cart, right? There's, it's diverse. Let's like in, let's engage in pleasantries. That's all good. Kind is being respectful, yet firm in your convictions. So I think there's a quote which is said in this article that says, kind people have the courage to respectfully speak the truth, even if they won't be considered nice for doing so. And I think that's a great trait for both in-house lawyers as well as ethics and compliance professionals. And I think the difference is perhaps being kind means you're not, afla- you're not afraid of conflict. You're not afraid of raising maybe the unpopular opinion, but you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do, which is really what our job has always been. I've had a lot of nice people tell me in my years, you can't be friends with people who work for you which I think is really interesting because I've always made strong friendships with people on my team. And I think that difference is, is if you're nice, there's a barrier between becoming friends with people on your team because they're never going to be able to have that good constructive conversation, right? Which is the both the positive feedback as well as the constructive feedback. More kind people, I think, can have that, right? You can have fun at work and really enjoy people on your team and reward them when they're being great. But if things go upside down, you're able to have a constructive, respectful conversation and understand and share what expectations were and how they were missed. So I think kindness just builds respect, a respectful environment and a fun environment. And I think even in this article, there's a stat that says kind environments express 36% more satisfaction with their jobs and 44 more committed to their organization, which is like an awesome yeah, outcome. I think, I think it's high about being friends. I feel the same way you do. I think it's also, you have to make sure that people understand, I think as a leader, you want to help to remove barriers 
and other things like that and be realistic. But it's also easier to be candid when it comes from a place of trust that somebody knows where you're coming. I also think that the nice problem is the people pleasers. It's also, they're also really just trying to maybe manage up as opposed to saying the hard truths and holding the ground for their message in the middle and their team. And I think it it decreases loyalty also. No, I think that I absolutely agree. And I I think that the kind people are able to earn trust and gain credibility, right? They're the people who aren't just the yes people or frankly, even the no people, right? They're the people who are willing to sit down with the business and say, this isn't going to be a problem, but I have some solutions for you. And the business starts trusting those conversations and those problem solving skills. And that's really the ideal for kind of what I would view as a high performing compliance team, right? Which is you're engaged because They trust that you aren't just always going to say yes or no blindly, right? That you're actually going to be thoughtful and respectful and help them achieve the objective they're seeking to achieve, but in the right way. Exactly. I think that's, it's really important, especially because it helps people feel empowered to do the right thing, which is the thing that I went, I've been talking about this all the time lately is my elevator pitch of if that's our, if our job is to help empower people to make the right decisions in the tough moments, being kind as opposed to having being a people pleaser, I think is not always easy, but always critical. Yeah, I agree. I just think about what a kind and respectful work environment means and how does that translate? I think that translates very well into a culture of compliance, by the way, right? Maybe instead of just talking about ethics and integrity, we ought to be thinking and talking about kindness and respect as well. And that probably will help move the needle as it relates to your culture. So I think with that, the other article, I think we just actually, another thing is we talk a lot in there and that one's a bit older. And I will, when I put this out, I'll put the whole link to this so it's from about 20, but it's just as, as applicable as it was 10 years ago. Um, and as we were just talking about nice versus kind, I was thinking about here, one of there's 10, it's 10 top 10, it's a top 10 list of ways to guarantee that your best people will quit. And in this idea of, quiet promotion, quiet quitting, and also the quiet promotion, which to me means the you get a whole lot more work, no one talks about it, and you're not <laughs> really promoted. I think it's a huge thing. And going back to what we were talking about in nice and kind, one of my favorite points in there, and I think one of yours as well, is treating people equally versus treating people fairly. How do you define that? Yeah, it is my favorite nugget. I love that we both landed on that as the takeaway. So I think about teams this way. I think a little bit like the Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood song. Do you remember that skit from Sesame oh, Street? Yeah. yeah. I, funnily enough, we did that skit when I think I was in first grade and I played the judge. <laughs> so talk about <laughs> knowing who you are at a young age. But Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood is this great skit where I think it walks and demonstrates the value of everybody in your community, right? Everybody plays a role and there's value there. And I think as a leader, it's really important that one, you understand everybody's value and two, they understand what their value is to that larger team and the company. That said, once you've been clear about the value proposition, not everyone should be treated equally, right? What that means in my head is at the end of the year, if a manager decides I'm going to give everybody the same amount of bonus, let's say, regardless of the value, 
or their performance or their potential, you're basically treating everybody equally. And by the way, not fairly. So I think the difference is, is fairness recognizes that people are providing different level of value. And fairness recognizes that you shouldn't peanut butter your approach to everybody. And if you manage from a place of fairness, you're going to find that one, everybody does understand their value. Two, they're all going to give their all. If you treat everybody equitably, what you're going to find is you're going to have a team of mediocre performers and all of your rock stars have left to go find better opportunities, places where they can be promoted or distinguished given their performance and their potential. So to me, like that's the difference. And I, to me, that resonates deeply. I've worked in organizations where everybody is treated equally. And I will tell you as a strong performer, it's like when I learned that, it was almost like an affront to my being. I know. That it changed, luckily, but it's just like, why did I bust my butt, right? And give it all, give this my all if ever, all of us are going to be treated the same way. It's a real disincentive to your rock stars. I think that's true. I also think one other thing I thought about this is if you are somebody, I saw a statistic once about how much time poor performers take versus your strong performers. So I, what I also find is fascinating is if you're spending all your time figuring out what to do with someone who's not doing a good job and not focusing, recognizing and treating, giving some recognition or time to the one who's in your mind is not a problem. It's depending on the personality of that person. They may just think, wait, what does it matter? What do I care? There's no recognition for doing the right thing. And there's going to be no benefit because no one's noticing it because they're too busy trying to weed out the problem. And I'm not a problem. So I find that to be a dynamic that I've thought a lot about. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I just think that there's no reason in a company to treat everybody equally, right? There's so many different levers to reward your performers, right? Whether it's a merit increase or it's your bonus or LTI or other opportunities. So it's just, it's a miss, I think, for companies, corporations who still have this mindset of treating everybody equally is is just not... those days are gone, I hope, and behind us. I hope so, too. And this one also had have fun at work, have some fun at work, which when you talked about that before, I think it's, I always feel in our world, you've got to take the work seriously. But if you take yourself too seriously all the time, you're never going to have a pleasant experience and you're never going to be relatable to your business. Totally agree. And I think that one of the things that I was pretty thoughtful about, especially when I became chief ethics and compliance officer was like, I don't want to be scary or not approachable. So it was very purposeful that I let my, we'll call it like authentic self, which I don't think I've ever said in my life before, but come through because I want people to understand, like, I will talk about the Eagles with you. I'll have a beer and and talk about the Eagles. I'll tell you about my four brothers who still torture me to this day. We're all people. We all are dealing with a life outside of work. I don't take myself too seriously and relationships are important. And so it was very much a purpose build those relationships with the business people so that they could come and talk to me and trust me when the hard stuff came up. And so that, and I think that's not unique to me. I think that's an issue that a lot of chief chief ethics and compliance officers are probably having to. And even within the teams, regardless of what level you're at, 
the fact that you build those relationships before the crisis, sometimes you can't because that's the first time you meet somebody. But if you look at all of your connections in one thing, like I'm doing one word, one country or another, realize people in the business talk to each other. Yes, they do. Get a lot. Don't being, as you just said, the authentic self is really important. And we, you and I, before we started this call, we talked about the Eagles and the Bills. Right. a Super Bowl for those in the United States. <laughs> The thing is, if people don't know you, they also find it harder to trust you. You're just like this person on a screen, especially in a remote world. So if you can connect, it, it makes a difference. Sometimes it also, you feel like you're doing a good job when everyone feels like reaching out to you. But sometimes I'm thinking, I don't, I got, I don't know anything about payroll. I don't, I mean, kind of like <laughs> a certain point, you're like, is this in compliance with my pay? I'm like, I don't know what you're doing in this part of the business, but have you talked to HR? So in some ways, that's great. So you feel good about that. With that said, whether that is actually nice or kind or fair or not, yeah. us as women, I think we think about these things much more than men. And how do you think that that relates to us out in our organizations, whatever they are, and also in terms of a culture? We talked a little bit about it before, but I thought from a women's standpoint on this podcast, I would love to get your view. It's so funny you say that because I, I remember maybe two years ago in the Wall Street Journal, there was a, or, or Harvard Business Review, I can't remember. They did a study, I think it was Harvard Business Review. They did a study and it, they found that women who use humor at work are essentially penalized. Yeah. So they're not taken as seriously as women who are more serious at work. And I thought, oh boy, I'm screwed. Because <laughs> that's kind of how I operate. And I thought it was really interesting because it, my takeaway really was there is a box that has been defined and women are supposed to be acting in, in accordance with the four walls of that box, right? Which is don't be funny. Maybe don't be part of your authentic self. It, the leading through authenticity, maybe it hasn't been rewarded just yet. And we, I think we see some female politicians around the world who might be trying to buck that trend and yeah. people are starting to appreciate that women can lead and they can be different than their predecessors. So I, I they're, we just have to deal with a different set of preconceived notions yeah. that people put upon us. My view has always been, I'm just going to be me. I don't know how to be anyone else. And if you don't like that, okay, I'm sorry not going to try to create some work, Amy, to fit your mold. And for me, that has paid off in droves with my team, most importantly, right? Like where they get where I'm coming from, they understand exactly where I'm coming from, what my focus is, what our joint objectives are. They understand my style and my expectations. And so that helps create the culture of my team. And you hope that culture just permeates. And there's going to be people, not everybody likes everybody. And again, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. Evidence I'm not the nice person. But there, I think there's, it's just a, it's a tougher job for us to try to navigate some of the, I think, cultural expectations. And our job, our job probably more than most is to try to impact more inclusivity and more empathy and more thought about things perhaps in a new way. And I think that's all good. And I think we just need to keep trying to do that, right? To push that envelope and knock down one of those walls of the box that we've been put in. Yeah. So interesting. You were reminding me of a story from many years ago when I was starting in HR compliance and it was at my former company and everybody, okay, because I was going out basically on my listening tour and getting to know people. And I was at a 
meeting of a bunch of general managers of airport catering facilities in Atlanta. And this is mostly guys. And this is dudes. And they would all agree. And they had trivia in between different things. And then they asked one of the questions, going back to U.S. football, was when Brett Favre was chose, chosen in the first round at number 34. Now, I happen to know that in the NFL, there were only 32 teams at the time, which sounds small. So after the break, I went up to the guy who was the trivia guy and said, I think that he was actually, if it's 34, I just said exactly that, this guy. I didn't call it out and thing. And he immediately calls the leader of the entire team and the girl is trying to challenge me on football. And so <laughs> the other, the guy who ran the whole region pulls it up and is, yep, she's. And then I looked at them both and said, do you really think I would come up to you with something like this if I wasn't confident? And they laughed and I laughed and they said, I didn't want to like you, but now I like you and respect you. And I'm not saying I, but it was because it was a genuine moment. It was humorous. And because I didn't try to argue about it in front of a zillion people, I ended up building relationships. And I think people, that's when it comes to your genuine self. But as you're talking about it at that moment, it was kind of like, it changed just little moment that changed the trajectory of my relationship with the business. Cause I showed up at their meeting, I asked questions and then I actually knew something that had nothing to do with what I needed to do substantively, but yeah. And yeah. I think people should keep that in mind. And I think as if I had thought about it more in some of these contexts of eight, 10 years ago, I might not have said something, but I was still trying to figure out my real self. You made me think about that a minute ago, Amy. Yeah, no, it's that's a great example. And I think it's true. And all of our examples are sports, which is unfortunate. <laughs> it doesn't always have to be that you have to lean into sports, although it's what men tend to lean into, majority of men. But I think that's right. Just connecting with them on something that is not tied to work so that they understand like you're more than just this work person who I'm just going to ask these questions to. Like you're somebody who I actually might want to engage in a conversation with. I did end up losing miserably at their casino night because I'm not a gambler or that interested in it. There was no real consequence compliance people. I think it was food and there was an extra drink ticket or something, but yes, it was really. So unfortunately there are certain levels I'm not as good at connecting on, but, and that just happened to be it. But I guess it's a good time to talk about it for the U.S. people because it is the NFL playoffs and the rest of the year. I'm not so sports oriented. But with that, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And and thank you for being a good friend and mentor and advisor to me. And that's about it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thanks so much for joining us on the Great Women in Compliance Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.